I've recently started gardening again. I've had the joy of watching seeds sprout in soil as I've watered them, seeing these little plants peek out. I've been relearning again the things that a plant needs, sun, soil, water. I've noticed in my garage, which is my makeshift uh, greenhouse, that plants turn toward the life-giving light. Plants turn towards the light. I've noticed this on my windowsill, that the plants are literally leaning over towards the window, turning, stretching, growing towards the light, the life-giving light. I left some plants in my garage for a couple of days before bringing them out into the sun. And I literally saw that they had bent over all the way to the side and they're all aimed towards the one window in the garage. Like those little plants in my garage and on my windowsill, you know, we were made as well to search for beauty and glory. We are hardwired by our creator to seek for it and to find it in the all glorious one, the king of glory. This is why we exist. We were created by our infinitely good and delightful God to see him, to know him, to find our life in him to delight in him and in his goodness forever. We've been studying about the life and ministry of Jesus in the New Testament Gospel of Luke. There are in the New Testament four Gospels, these accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Another Gospel writer, Jesus' disciple John, who shows up in our, uh, in our account this morning, in his Gospel introduced chapter 1 by describing Jesus as being our creator God. John writes, in him was life, meaning Jesus is the source of all life, and the life was the light of men. He says in John 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then he says, this one, the word, that is Jesus, became flesh, that is, became a man, and dwelt or lived among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We continue this morning our study in the Gospel of Luke. Luke, in his eyewitness narrative, has been answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And in the last section that we studied, in Luke 9, 18 and following, Jesus himself asks the question. He raises the question with his disciples by asking first, who do the crowds say that I am? And his disciples answer that the crowds are not on the same page, that many believe Jesus is a resurrected prophet of old. Perhaps John the Baptist come back to life, or Elijah or one of the other prophets come back from the dead. Clearly, the crowds are confused. Then Jesus asks the even more important question, but who do you say that I am? And this is a question not only for the disciples to answer, but one that you and I must answer too. Who do you, who do I say that Jesus is? Do we know? And Peter answers, you are the Christ of God. That is the long-awaited Messiah come from God. And Peter is right. Jesus confirms it. 
But then immediately Jesus confuses his followers by talking about suffering and death and resurrection, ideas that they had no categories for when it came to the Messiah. Jesus then turns to the crowds in Luke 9, verses 23 to 27, and lays out for any that would follow him the true cost of discipleship, the call to come and die. Just as Jesus would bring life through his death, he calls us to follow him on this path through death to life everlasting. This morning, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. And our main point this morning is this. Our main point is this. Jesus is the King of glory. Jesus is the King of glory. And this morning, we will learn about glory foreshadowed, glory unveiled, glory misunderstood, and then finally, the King of glory. Foreshadowed glory unveiled glory, misunderstood glory, and the king of glory. I pray that this morning that we would see Jesus' glory through the eyes of faith and delight in him above all others. Let's begin by reading the first part of our passage this morning. And for context, I will pick up at the end of our previous section. We'll begin reading in verse 23, though our section starts in 28. So I will be reading, follow along with me, Luke 9, 23 to 31. This is God's word. And he, that is Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, our passage, verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So let's look, first of all, at foreshadowed glory, foreshadowed glory, verses 26 and 27. As we begin in terms of setting the context, look at verse 28, the first verse in our section. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him. Luke connects these two texts with a reference to time about eight days after these sayings. So these texts are to be understood together, which means that the things that are about to happen in verses 28 and following are linked with the things that Jesus has been saying in verses 26 and 27. This is foreshadowing. What is foreshadowing? Well, a definition. Foreshadowing is a literary tool for cluing in a reader about future events in the story. Foreshadowing is a literary tool for cluing in the reader about future events in a story. 
Jesus here is giving prophecy in verses 26 and 27. He's pointing to the future, and he does this on two levels. First, he gives a prophecy about a distant event in verse 26. He's referencing the second coming. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So he first is prophesying about a distant event, an event that has not yet taken place when Christ will come in power and set everything right. But then secondly, he gives a second prophecy about a closer event in verse 27. He says that certain people would see the kingdom of God before death. Luke then connects these prophecies to our section. Eight days after these sayings, Jesus takes Peter, John, and James and goes up on the mountain to pray. But this transfiguration that is about to take place is actually a foreshadowing of the future, a glimpse into the future when Christ will return in glory. This literary tool of foreshadowing is something that you can find in literature throughout the world and throughout history, but you can see it as well in scripture. You can see it in the Old Testament as God in so many ways prefigures this Christ who was to come to be the redeemer for sinners and to restore sinful humanity back to their creator. And this foreshadowing, cluing us in about what is going to happen in the future, is a way that God demonstrates his sovereignty over all things and over history. We don't know the future, but God does. And in his prophecies and in his foreshadowing, he points to the fact that he is sovereign over all of it. Now, as we look into this text of Scripture this morning, we must remember that this transfiguration of Christ is a foreshadowing of the future, of your future and of mine. Christ will return as the king to rule and as the judge of all the earth. And it is certain that he will come one day. Perhaps today we must be ready. He can return at any time. And on the day that he does return, all of our longings for a reckoning will be fulfilled perfectly. All of our desires for wrongs to be made right and justice to be enacted in full will become reality. But while that might sound good at first, the truth is all of us are on the wrong side of justice. We all deserve such perfect justice. The Bible is clear that all of us are sinners, that we have in fact rebelled against our creator God, that we have committed treason against God, our creator, and we have sought to dethrone him, to take him off of his throne and off of his judgment seat and to place ourselves there to rule this world ourselves and to rule our own lives. The Bible calls this sin. And the Bible says that when Jesus comes to judge, all sinners will deserve to be judged by him. If you are listening to this and you are not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here with us tuning in. But let me speak with you for a moment. 
we are glad that you're exploring Christianity and you are always welcome to come to our services or to tune into these live streams. But let me say to you out of a heart of love that Jesus is a savior for all kinds of sinners. And he is willing to receive any that come to him to have their sins forgiven. He will forgive. But if you do not come to him to have your sins forgiven, know this, that he is a fierce and just judge. And it is a fearful thing to be put into the hands of a holy God. Let me encourage you to run to Christ today. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. That is, any day that someone hears the good news of the gospel message, the good news that there is salvation for sinners, if we would turn from our sins and trust in Christ, that today can be that day of salvation for you and for any that would hear this message and turn to Christ. Let me encourage you to not delay, to not put this off. Christ could return at any time, and we must be ready. And the way that we are made ready is by coming to Christ, knowing that he's our judge, and finding in him a savior. So let me encourage you, run to Christ. Secondly, in our passage, we have not only foreshadowed glory, but secondly, we have unveiled glory, unveiled glory, verses 28 to 31, verses 28 to 31. Let's read verses 28 to 31 again. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he, that is Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus took his three closest disciples, his inner circle of Peter, John, and James, and he takes them so that they could go together up on a mountain to pray. Just a couple of quick notes here on discipleship. Do you see that Jesus was a limited person in his humanity? He wasn't able to disciple every one of his followers to the same extent. And so he had to select a certain number of people with the number of days and the number of years that he had on earth to invest in more deeply. And of those 12, he invested in three even more deeply. Those that here would see even more of him and get more of his time. Let me encourage you as you think about discipleship to realize you can't disciple everyone. And you can't have the same depth of relationship with everybody in the church. So let me encourage you to follow Jesus' example and go deep with some people rather than making this an excuse to not go deep with anyone. You also notice here that one of the ways that he discipled his own disciples was by being committed to prayer. Jesus, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, devoted himself to prayer, and he taught and discipled his disciples by praying with them. Let me encourage you as well to follow his example in your discipleship and be praying with one another and to be helping others, newer Christians, to grow in prayer. Well, as Jesus is praying, he is transfigured before his disciples. His appearance is altered, and his face and his clothing begin to shine with dazzling whiteness and brightness. Two men appear talking with him, Moses and Elijah. 
These are two of God's faithful servants from Israel's history. Moses, the man who served as God's mediator and Israel's leader during God's miraculous deliverance of his people from Egypt 1,450 years earlier. And Elijah, the powerful prophet of Israel from more than 800 years before Christ. These two historical leaders of Israel, long dead, appear speaking with Jesus. Just a, a quick note here. These men are alive, though dead. Let me just say this clearly. The dead still exist. Death is not the end. It is the beginning of the afterlife. This is what the Bible teaches. And these men who put their faith in the promises of God, the promises that looked forward to Christ, though physically dead in terms of this world, live on in paradise in the presence of their creator, God. So why these men? Why is it Moses and Elijah, of all people who appear at Jesus' transfiguration? Well, I think there are some obvious reasons it is Moses and Elijah. First, both men prefigure Christ. Both men prefigure Christ. They are ways in which the Messiah was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Moses is a prefigurement of Messiah. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19, Moses says this to the people of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you that is like Moses from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Elijah as well is a model for the forerunner to Messiah. In Malachi 4, God prophesies, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now, Malachi is speaking after Elijah was long dead, saying that Elijah was going to come again before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Jesus has already taught us in the book of Luke that John the Baptist fulfilled that. He was one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah and prepared God's people for the Messiah. So first, both men prefigure Christ. A second reason that it's Moses and Elijah is that both men represent the two sections of our Old Testament scriptures. They represent the two sections of the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. Moses, the one who received the law as Israel's mediator and wrote the five books of the law. Elijah is the quintessential prophet who's a major character in the second section of the Old Testament called the prophets. In this way, the two men serve as representatives and witnesses to Christ from Israel's history and Israel's scriptures. And a third reason Moses and Elijah are chosen to be with Jesus at his transfiguration. Both men were given the privilege of seeing God's glory in striking events in their own lifetimes. Both men were given the privilege of seeing God's glory in striking events in their own lifetimes. In Exodus 33 and 34, which were read for us this morning, Moses makes the sweet request to see God's glory. And his request is granted on the mountain of Sinai. God not only presents his glory 
the glory of his back, which he is able to bear as God covers him in the cleft of the rock. But then he presents himself, God presents himself to Moses by listing his wonderful attributes. Elijah in 1 Kings 19 receives a similar display of glory. God appears in glory to Elijah on Mount Horeb. And God displays his glory to Elijah. And on another mountain, a third mountain, both men appear. But here with Christ, as he is transfigured and unveiled in glory. Unveiled glory. When I think of veils, I think of weddings. Perhaps you think of your own wedding day. What veils are things at weddings that hide the beauty of the bride until the proper moment when it is revealed. The bride's beauty is revealed. I remember the moment I saw my wife's dazzling beauty for the first time on our wedding day. It was glorious. Christ's glory had been hidden through his incarnation. He was, in the words of the hymn writer, veiled in flesh, his humanity, was obscured and and it shadowed his true identity as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. But here, he is not given glory. No, his inherent glory is revealed or unveiled. The veil is pierced. His true identity and glory are unveiled for the disciples to see. As we think about glory as human beings, so much of our beauty or glory is external. We have to make ourselves beautiful, whether it's adding some things or taking some things away, whether it's adding makeup and accessories and beautiful garments, or like me, taking the excess of my hair away so that I look more presentable and not as old. But here, Jesus is unveiled in glory and nothing is being added to him or given to him. No, he himself is glorious and beautiful. He isn't given glory or beauty. He is the definition of glory and beauty. And here, Jesus' glory is revealed by being unveiled. But even here, Even as Jesus is being revealed in glory, he is still, in some measure, hidden. God told Moses in Exodus 33, before appearing to him in glory, no one can see me and live. No one can see God and live. Peter and John and James should have, would have died if they had seen Jesus unfiltered in his divine glory without at least the veil of his humanity, even in a glorified form. So what is glory? Well, a quick definition. Glory defined. God's glory is the radiance of his beauty. The radiance of his beauty. God's holiness and the perfection of all of his attributes on display, which emanate with piercing brightness. The Bible talks of God's glory as a major theme of Scripture. In fact, as theologians will tell us, God's glory is not just a theme in Scripture, but the theme of Scripture. 
God does all things for his glory to display his perfections and attributes for all to see, to delight in, and to enjoy, and to see God's glory, to behold his beauty is the greatest joy that anyone or anything can experience. To see and behold beauty is the reason we were created. It's the reason we exist. And we were created to behold and to enjoy the beauty that is in God and God alone. Jesus here displays God's glory because he is the king of glory. Jesus here is discussing his departure. The Greek word is exodus at Jerusalem with Moses and Elijah. His departure from this world is a shorthand description of how the king would be glorified through his death and humiliation, as well as through his resurrection and ascension back to heaven. You see, it is at the cross as he reigns, as Jesus reigns as the sovereign of the universe, wearing a crown of thorns, that all of God's attributes are on display in Christ at the same time. It's at the cross where Christ is seen to be most glorious. His humility on the cross as he reigns as the sovereign of the universe, wearing a crown of thorns, his mercy for sinners, forgiving those who are killing him, and God's justice on display as Jesus bears the sin of humanity. His love displayed as he dies for sinners and his patience and long-suffering nature in submitting to torture and death. It is at the cross where Christ would be glorified and where we see his glorious attributes most clearly. You know, this is the gospel message, and the gospel message is called a gospel of glory. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And this gospel message shows us most clearly what God is like. Our God is a good God who has created us to know him and to enjoy him. We have sinned, as we talked about earlier, and rejected him as our king and sought to be that king in his place. And though we deserve punishment and his wrath. God in his kindness has come and showed himself to be a merciful and gracious God by coming in the person of Christ. God become man, humbling himself to death, the death of a criminal on the cross, so that he could show mercy and grace to sinners, to any of us that would turn from our sins and trust in Christ and his death in our place as a sacrifice for sinners. He would then be resurrected and rise from the grave to new life, showing his power over sin and death and leading us into a new and eternal resurrection life to any that would follow him. He then ascended and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And this gospel message, this truth about Jesus and what he's accomplished for sinners and how he was glorified through the humiliation of the cross is a gospel message which is good news for any that would hear it, that would believe it, and that would respond in faith. I hope if you're a Christian and hearing this gospel message again, that it is sweet to you. It should be. It is by hearing this gospel message 
that we can be delighting in our Savior Jesus and basking in his glory. Let me encourage you to be meditating on this gospel message, this gospel of glory, and on the glorious one, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we see not only foreshadowed glory and unveiled glory, but thirdly, we see a misunderstood glory, a misunderstood glory, verses 32 and 33. Let's read those verses. Now, Peter and those who were with him, that is James and John, were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now the disciples awake from sleep during prayer, a repeated theme in the Gospels, a foreshadowing of what is to come in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples awake, and in utter shock, Peter does exactly what we've come to expect Peter to do. He starts talking before thinking. Luke records he didn't know what he was talking about. But regardless of this, Peter speaks, revealing his first impression of the situation. Proverbs 18, verse 2 says that fools take no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing uh, their opinion. First, Peter makes a statement of excitement. Master, it's good that we are here. He's excited to be there with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Second, he makes a rather bizarre suggestion. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Apparently, Peter is suggesting the making of tents or booths, as in the Mosaic Feast of Booths, where the Israelites would commemorate God's provision for his people in the wilderness by constructing temporary structures and living in them during that feast. Now, Peter is about to receive a shock and a rebuke from God the Father. Why is that? Why does a Peter receive such a rebuke for these comments? Well, it appears that Peter has misunderstood this scene. He's misunderstood glory. He's misunderstood the nature of the glory right in front of him. First, Peter has misunderstood Jesus' place in this scene. Peter has misunderstood Jesus' place. No doubt Peter was raised in a faithful Jewish home, hearing the accounts of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt with great signs and wonders. No doubt he heard of Elijah, the great prophet, and his clashes with King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, and the prophets of Baal. It appears that Peter's first impression was that Jesus is in a privileged position, rubbing shoulders with these heroes of the faith. Wow, what a good thing for Jesus to get to speak with Moses and Elijah. But Peter couldn't have been more wrong. It is Moses and Elijah who consider themselves privileged and unworthy to be in the presence of Jesus, the King of glory. Moses and Elijah have no glory at all. It is Jesus who is being revealed in glory and Moses and Elijah basking in his inherent glory. And on top of this, Peter has misunderstood his own place. He's misunderstood his own place. Peter seems glad to be counted with them as well. He's excited to be a part of this entourage. In just a few verses, Peter and the other disciples will be arguing about who among them is the greatest? It's clear that their concern 
with their own glory in their relationship with Christ, attempting to use their relationship with Jesus for their own glory and promotion in the world. And this transfiguration scene has displayed Peter's need to still grow in his knowledge of who Jesus is. While Peter has passed the quiz about who Jesus is, answering correctly the Messiah, he still has not fully grasped all that Jesus is. You know, we can do this as well. We can misunderstand the nature of Jesus' glory. And in our sin, we so easily pursue our own glory instead of being content to bask in the glory of Christ, realizing that in a relationship with Christ, we have more than we could ever have by any of the gifts that he gives us. My children love a children's book, Full Moon Rising. In this children's book, it tells the story of the moon who was stealing glory, boasting and bragging about his light and his beauty, not realizing that he, the moon, was created simply to reflect the much greater light of the sun. The book says he'd boast away and love to say, I am the greatest light, until one day a piercing ray showed him a shocking sight. He saw his pride, and then he cried for all that he had done, for he had lied when he denied. His light came from the sun. So now each night, a new delight is what he loves the most, reflecting light with all his might. The sun is now his boast. You know, we were created to see glory, to delight in Christ's glory, and then to image and reflect that glory by bringing him glory and showing something of what he's like to those around us in this world. In a recent sermon, David Platt confessed that as a young Christian, he chose a life verse, John 3.30. John the Baptist's confession about Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. And Pastor David Platt confessed that early in his pastoral ministry, while he really did desire Jesus to be glorified, in retrospect, he sees that he also sinfully wanted to increase as well, to receive glory as well with Jesus. And this can be so subtle. We can be in the words of Garrett Cow, attempting to photobomb Jesus, to put ourselves into the limelight to share in Jesus' glory and to promote ourselves. This is a temptation for all of us when it comes to Jesus' person and glory. We're tempted to think about him in terms of what we can get from him, what we can get out of our relationship with him, the stuff, the benefits, rather than simply to delight in him, realizing that it is him that we want, not his stuff or some share in his glory. So I wonder, what is it, brother, sister, that you are looking for from your relationship with Jesus? What is it that you are secretly hoping your association with him might get you? Do you know that simply knowing Christ is so much better than any other gift that he may give? Let me encourage you to put those desires to death and to bask in Jesus' glory and delight in reflecting his glory as faithfully as you can. 
Fourthly, we see the king of glory. We have foreshadowed glory, unveiled glory, misunderstood glory, and finally, Jesus, the king of glory. Let's read verses 34 to 36. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. We see in response to Peter's babblings, a cloud that comes and overshadows them. They are entering a cloud, which here is uh, a, a, an actual presentation of God's glory, similar to God's glory seen in the Exodus, when God's glory was seen in a cloud and then in a pillar of fire as God lived with his people, and presented himself to his people as he led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness into the promised land. Here, this cloud comes and overshadows them. Look at their response to God's glory being presented in this cloud. Fear. They respond to the beauty of God's glory and holiness with fear, as all have done who've seen God's glory. And then we not only have a cloud, but we have a voice. A voice similar to Jesus' baptism. When God the Father declares as the Holy Spirit descends and anoints Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, here a voice comes echoing Deuteronomy 18, where God said that a prophet would come and that they must listen to him, the Messiah, hear the voice, God himself, the first person of the Trinity, the Father speaks. And just as God's glory was revealed in the past, revealed to Moses and revealed to Elijah, that revelation of glory always includes God speaking and explaining who he is. And here, God speaks, reprimanding Peter and setting the record straight. Jesus is the king of glory. The law and the prophets and the persons of Moses and Elijah testify to Jesus, and here God the Father bears witness as well. This is Jesus. This is my son, my chosen one. This is the one that you must listen to. I wonder, as you think of a passage like this, how you respond. I think perhaps like me, your first response is, wow, I wish that I could have been there. I wish that I could have been Peter, James, and John and seen a prefigurement of Christ's coming in glory. How do we apply a passage like this, being those who were not on that mountain with those chosen three? Well, do you know, brothers and sisters, friends, we can still behold this king of glory. We can still see him and delight in him. How do we do that? Well, we do that by hearing, by reading, by listening to God's word. In Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul writes to the Galatian church, 
who were in Asia Minor and who were living decades after Jesus had died and been resurrected and ascended to heaven. Decades later, they had heard the gospel message and believed it. And he writes to these Galatians. Galatians 3 and verse 1. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now wait, what? Before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? How does that happen, Paul? Well, he says in verse 2, it was by hearing with faith. He says it again in verse 5, it was by hearing with faith that they saw Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed before their eyes as crucified and as the glorious one. Just as, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know, we too can behold this king of glory by listening to God's word, by hearing the gospel message, by reading the scriptures. It is by reading the scriptures that we are able to see Jesus. It is by reading and meditating on God's word that God speaks to us and reveals himself to us in glory. So how do we apply a passage like this? We apply a passage like this by seeing Jesus in the scriptures, by listening to these passages, and by reflecting and meditating on them. We can, in the words of John Piper, both see and savor Jesus Christ. Not only see him through the eyes of faith, but also savor him. He's talking about the idea of Psalm 34, that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We can, in seeing Jesus, not only see him and know that he's glorious, but delight in him. My wife made some bread yesterday something that we always do over the last two or three weeks. She made a wonderful loaf of bread. It was her best one yet. It was so good, she brought it to me right after she had baked it, a slice of bread. I was transported to Paris. I was transported to Europe. It was, in the words of Ratatouille, a symphony of crackle. This bread was so good that I savored it. I didn't just eat it and move on. No, I slowly ate it, enjoyed every bite. I ate it slowly. And then I went and I cut another piece and I had more. See, this is what we're supposed to do with Christ. We're not only to see him, to know that he's glorious, but we are to savor him. We are to delight in him. We are to meditate on who he is and in the reflection, enjoy him more and more fully. John Owen, in his wonderful work, the Puritan pastor John Owen, The Glory of Christ, tells us that reflecting on Christ, seeing his glory and delighting in his glory is going to be the work of all eternity. This is what we're going to do in heaven. And the transfiguration is a small picture into what glory and eternity and heaven is going to be like for God's people, seeing Christ, being with him, delighting in him. And what John Owen says is, if that is to be our eternal work forever, 
then we must begin that work now by enjoying him now, by seeing him in his word and meditating on him in the gospel and delighting in him now and so preparing our hearts for heaven and for eternity. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to not only know that Christ is glorious, which is important, to not only know who Jesus is as the Messiah, which is important, but to see him as beautiful and delight in him as the most delightful thing in the world. It is this that separates us from Satan and his demons. You see, Satan and his demons have seen Christ. Satan and his demons have seen God and his glory. And while they know that he's glorious and they've seen his glory, they hate it. They reject it. And they have run away from it. Know the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, between us who know Christ and Satan and his realm, is that we not only know this King of glory, but we delight in him. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you as a major way of applying this passage of the transfiguration to actually read these witnesses who have written in the Gospel of John and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and 1st Peter and 2nd Peter, who tell us about this King of glory. In 2nd Peter, Peter talks about having been on the mountain. In John 1, John says, we have seen his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father. And then they testify to him by writing these scriptures. And let me encourage you, as Peter was encouraged by the new Christians that he writes to in 1 Peter, that though we have not seen him, be encouraged that you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We see in John chapter 20 that doubting Thomas would not believe that Jesus was resurrected until he saw him himself touched him with his own hands. Jesus is patient with him and presents himself in his resurrected and glorified form to doubting Thomas. But then he gives a wonderful promise to you and to me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Peter seems excited at the faith of these young Christians who, though having not seen what Peter has seen, what James and John had seen in the transfiguration, that we have seen him by the hearing of faith, that we love Christ, and that we now rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be encouraged at the work that God has done in you, not only revealing himself to you in glory and in this glorious king, but turning your heart to love him and to rejoice in him. Jesus indeed is the king of glory. He is the king of glory. And as we considered in our intro to this sermon, like plants in a garden, orienting themselves towards the light, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do the same. To be orienting yourselves towards the life-giving light of Jesus. To orient your whole life towards Jesus, who is glorious. Because I think you'll find that like those little plants in my garage or on my windowsill, 
that you will orient your life towards what it is that you think is glorious. It may be that you are orienting your whole life toward things that are less glorious than Christ. You are orienting your life towards the glory of perhaps a house, perhaps the glory of a car, perhaps the glory of a relationship or a job or success or prestige or money. And that is bending your life in the wrong direction. You are bending yourself over like that plant in a way that will break you. Let me encourage you, friends, to be orienting your life towards the life-giving light of Christ, the glory of Christ, and then to respond as these disciples did. Though they were silent for a while, Matthew 17 says Jesus told them to keep silent until the resurrection. They did not remain silent. They not only found their life in Christ, delighting in his glory, they delighted to share that message with others. And it is because of their faithfulness that you and I are here, that you and I have believed this message, that you and I have trusted in Christ and are able to be in a relationship with him. And it is because of their faithfulness that we will one day be able to experience with them the joy of heaven and of eternity, where we are all able to bask in the glory of Christ forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that he is the King of glory. Thank you that he has been revealed to us as the glorious King. We pray that we would respond to this King by not only seeing him, not only understanding who he is, but delighting and basking in his glory, giving him praise and honor, delighting in him, and then using our lives to reflect his glory and to show others something of that glory as we reflect it to a watching world. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.